Hi, I'm Peter Kimball, and this is Top New Filmmakers, where we introduce you to filmmakers you might not have heard of, but definitely should pay attention to. And today we're talking with writer and director Sasha Levinson. Sasha directs films and commercials. Her short films have premiered at uh, South by Southwest and Cleveland International Film Festival, recently Slam Dance. And her commercials and music videos have been nominated for MTV and AICP awards and been published in the Communication Arts Annual and Shots. She's just she's just done it all. And we're talking to her today. Um, she has a great new film called Sylvie of the Sunshine State. And so we're going to be talking to Sasha about uh, about that, about her life in film and, and getting her take on things. Um, so, so, Sasha, thank you so much for taking some time today. Thank you for having me. This is this is my first podcast. <laughs> well, well, great. Um, I hope it goes well. I hope it goes well for you. I hope you enjoy it. But um, yeah, I the the idea here is just really just a sort of free flowing conversation, kind of getting your. I've got a lot of questions and thoughts about your film specifically, but also I, I think sometimes we only hear thoughts and opinions about film from people who are already super famous and, and uh, you know, celebrities. But I think there's so many working, really talented filmmakers out there who whose voice and opinions are, are just as important to hear. And I and I want to dive into that with you. Thank you. Um, so just wanted to start off. Um, wh where did you grow up? Where are you from? So I grew up in, for the first chunk of my life until I was 12 in New York. I was born in New York City, raised on Long Island. And when I was 12, um, my parents moved to San Francisco for a business opportunity. And I definitely had a sort of coming of age in San Francisco, uh, where I lived until I was 20, 21, and then moved to LA and got into the film industry very early. Okay. Very early in your life. In my life. Okay. Yeah. And so tell us a little about that. So what, how did you start off in the industry? So it's actually a pretty cool story and one that, that might not happen today. Um, just because of it was different times. It was before social media. I want to say it was almost before like cell phones were really a thing. And I was 19 years old and my dad had a neighbor who was writing and directing an independent film. And it was his first film. And I was like, knew that I wanted to be a director since the time that I saw Return of the Jedi in the movie theater when I was a little wow. And just the, the, you know, feeling this sense of being immersed in a story that was so big picture and the sound really, really called to me, um, which is interesting, you know, how Joseph Campbell talks a lot about like a calling and following your bliss. And he was actually really involved in the Star Wars films in terms of helping them get written. Um, so that's kind of cool. But anyways, my dad... Uh, introduced me to his neighbor. And this guy, Alan Jacobs, was making a film called Nina Takes a Lover. And it was starring Laura Sangiacomo and a British actor named Paul Reese. And he hired me. I was in my first year of film school at San Francisco City College. And he hired me to be his assistant. And it was very early on in the process. They were still casting. And so I would have to go and rent movies from the video store of all the actresses and actors that he was considering. And then I would have to like with two v VHS players, edit out the scenes and make him little like clip reels for him to watch. So he could see like the most important scenes. And when the film went into production, I couldn't be his assistant on set every day because I was also in school. So I was only available to be on the production three days a week. So they put me with the wardrobe department as an intern. And actually, uh, my career really took off from there. I started becoming, I, I, after that experience, I left film school and I decided that I was going to work in film because now I had all these contacts. And I kind of became like very young, like at age 20, like if you were coming to San Francisco to make a film, 
and you were bringing your costume designer with you from LA or from Hong Kong or from wherever, I would be the first call assistant and I would you oh, know, wow. them do. So I got to work on so many movies in that way. And then ultimately moved to LA to work doing costumes on a movie. Wow. That's so, that's so interesting. And I've got a couple, I've got a couple questions, but so w- when you're talking about the wardrobe and, and working with costumes, is that something that you were passionate about that you felt you had a re- real gift for, or was that just an entryway into film? Well, interestingly, and because you've seen my film and, and have seen a little bit of my mother and grandmother there, they've always been really into fashion. So it's been, and, and clothing. So it's been something that was like really kind of in my, just in my blood, I guess. I feel really comfortable in that space. And I didn't even have a chance to think about it. Like, is that something I'm passionate about? Like that was the offer that was made. And that was a space that I was extraordinarily comfortable in. And I just said, yes. And it was a really natural fit. And what's was really cool is that, you know, a lot of people don't realize that so much happens in the wardrobe trailer. First of all, the actors like meet with the directors, you know, and they're doing rehearsals and then they come to the wardrobe trailer and kind of vent a little bit there. Interesting. Really get to hear like the actor's perspective on what's going on, their feelings about choices that the director is making. So it was a huge education getting to live in that space for a few years. Wow. That's, I hadn't thought about that, but, um, that's really interesting. Did, um, well, and I want to, I want to get back into that, but going just a, a little back to film school. So you went to film school, you, did you have, um, a vision of what film school was going to be? Did it end up being that, I mean, you, you went, but then you left. So what was your film school experience like? Well, I kind of grew up in, in the days, I guess this was the, the early 90s when I would have been going into film school and I really wanted to go to NYU film school. That was my big dream because it was, you know, that was where you went if you wanted to mm-hmm. like, have, you know, a career in film. And my family were NYU alumni, but my grades were terrible. I was like, had definitely had learning difference. They would be called learning differences now. But back in those days, I just got really bad grades, mm. not have the kind of grades to get into like a decent a, a school like NYU. So I decided I was going to go to San Francisco City College Film School for two years, which was actually amazing. It was a really high level film department with some wonderful teachers. But as soon as I walked on set, literally that first day, I just felt like this was home. And I actually decided that I was going to take the rest of the semester off work every day for the next, you know, 30 or 45 days on this film and wound up never going back to film school. Wow. Do you, do you, do you regret that at all? Is it obvious that that was the right decision? Any thoughts on that? I think for me, it definitely was the right decision, but what, what kind of bums me out now is that I would love to teach And I haven't really explored that completely, but I do not have a college degree. So I wonder if I were going to teach writing or teach film somewhere, would that be necessary? Maybe not. I certainly have enough professional experience to, you know, be a teacher Mm -hmm. in this field. But um, I think like no regrets ever, you know, and it also just goes to show you with film, perhaps more than any other career, there are so many different paths to getting where you want to go. Yeah, absolutely. And so how did you, how did you wind that path from, from wardrobe into directing and, and, and everything else that you've done? It's so funny. A friend of mine was just asking me this question earlier. So the the short version is that, um, I, started working in wardrobe and I had an opportunity. I, I, I really worked with some wonderful actors, um, on these indie films that would come to San Francisco and I would be the wardrobe person. And the last one that I did before I moved to LA was with, um, starring Jennifer Aniston and Ioni Skye. 
and an actor named Mackenzie Aston, who's the brother of Sean. And we became buddies. And, um, and after the film, he's like, you know, it was a time in LA when everyone was like, everyone in their twenties was like renting these cool houses with like five people and doing the whole like roommate thing, which probably everyone still does. But he was like, I'm, I'm renting a house with a bunch of buddies down in West LA where he had grown up. Do you want to come in and move in with us as our roommate? And I said, I, I was sort of on the fence. So back in those days, the Hollywood reporter had a Tuesday international edition and in the back of the Tuesday international edition were job listings for jobs in films. So there was a job for a film for a costumer, not an assistant, but the main costumer, you're not even believe this for a movie that was starring Tobey Maguire and also Benicio del Toro had a piece in it. It was called Joyride. Um, directed by a guy named Quentin Peoples. So I was like, well, I'm going to apply for that job. And if I, if I get the job, I'll move to LA and I'll move in with that crew and see where it goes. And I went down to LA and had the interview and got the job. And so then I moved to LA and about, and then wound up doing like two more movies. Um, and then I was working on a television commercial doing wardrobe. And the director was a guy by the name of Jamie Kaleri, who is a really well-known animation director and software designer for stop motion animation. And I was doing wardrobe for him, but he had a reshoot that he had to do on a music video. So he said, would you, would you mind producing this reshoot for me? And, you know, because he could tell that I was, I was interested in more. And so I did it. And then I became a music video producer than a commercial producer. This was over the course of like two years, like learning how to budget, really learning all the aspects of production. It was a bit renegade, mm-hmm. um, kind of, you know, jump, just jumped in, you know, without really being fully ready for it. Um, and then it was a couple years later, I was producing a commercial for Burger King in Miami and my parents lived here And the owner of the production company invited all of us to the beach on one of our days off. And he was talking to my mom and he's like, you know, your daughter is so young, but she's such a great producer, like one of the better ones I've worked with. And my mom was like, well, yes, but you know, she really wants to be a director. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and so he came to work the next morning and he was like, I just had this vision last night and I want to tell you about it. I want to sign you as a director at my company. And this was a time where there were very few female commercial directors. Mm. And he was like, I really want to build you and, and make you this like, you know, big time female commercial director. And from there over the next, you know, 15 years, that's kind of what happened. And it took me away from actually writing and directing films in a sense, but I was always writing and always pitching and always having stuff almost green lit. But there was like this simultaneous track, which was really my film school, which was directing TV commercials and branded branded content, short films. And that's, it's, I mean, that's a fascinating, fascinating story and and an interesting path into, into the industry. Um, It's, it's interesting to me that this film, Sylvia, the Sunshine State is so personal. And then thinking about that compared to doing commercials and branded content, does it feel like a totally different paradigm? Is it a lot, the, the idea of super personal versus, you know, work for hire, how to, do you approach things differently? Well, yes, definitely. Um, I just came off of a like a big five day shoot for a pharmaceutical company, and I kind of needed to like you know steady myself after because it's it's a lot. It's a lot dealing with like that very sort of um, corporate mentality and you know, approvals. And it's just, it's, there's a lot of heavy lifting and personality management and detail management that needs to happen in that space versus the film that I made was so organic that it was just, it was very freeing. 
in a way. Mm -hmm. It was very, very freeing. Um, The reason why I made this film was because throughout my career, I had consistently been writing scripts and having them get close to getting made, but then ultimately not getting made. It happened on two different occasions. And then in 2020, I decided I was going to like really immerse myself in the independent film world, which is where I really wanted to have a life and be. So I went to Sundance, you know, knowing that I would know some people there. My commercial mm-hmm. company was like having a party, you know, and there definitely like a lot of my peers would be there. Um, and just to really meet people and start talking. And I had a script under my arm and I wound up getting a lot of interest around my script and then going to LA and having some great meetings about the script that I wrote, the discomfort of skin. And then the COVID shutdown happened. And I was like, you know, I just, I want to sort of make that leap and make, make a feature film, which seems to be, although it feels somewhat arbitrary, such a big like check mark in the belt of a director and mixing metaphors for sure. <laughs> no, but absolutely. Yeah. A check mark in the belt. Yep. <laughs> um so yeah, I I was like, I feel like if I'm gonna be home for the next three months and I'm gonna be responsible for taking care of my child on my own, she's going to be doing school. Like it almost felt like a weird sci-fi movie. Like <laughs> global virus pandemic happening outside and this like intimate, like what is going to unfold. And so I just decided to, to do it. Yeah. It's a little bit implausible sci-fi. I don't think people would buy it if, if it was a, if it was just a fiction, but uh, it's been been a crazy time. And I think that's something that's really, really interesting about your film. And I wonder about, um, how much do you view your film? Because so much of it is about you and your daughter um, th- through this COVID time. Um, and even, even you know, as we think of like the pandemic, it's 2020 feels different than 2021 and 2022. And But um, do you look at your film as, is it about the pandemic through the lens of your family or is it about your family and it just happens to be during the pandemic? Yeah, very much the latter. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's definitely about, you know, this sort of beauty and dysfunction and generational trauma of that my family carries. Um and, you know, during a time when we were sort of all in the pressure cooker mm-hmm. globally and, you know, familially. and it is so um it's so personal and it it really is courageous i think to to put yourself out there because you're you're putting yourself out there twofold both as a creative director of this you know piece and you care about what people i assume you care about what people think of uh you know your creative work but then it's also you as a person as a parent as a as a child out there um how yeah how do you how did you feel with that did that feel like a big uh thing that needed a lot of courage or did that just feel second nature it's a really good question um i was like i've always been i'm an aries i can be impulsive i'm like act first and think later okay and that was very much the case here um we get very, we get very too polarizing impressions of the film. Thank goodness. The positive side is more like there's way more positive mm-hmm. than there is negative. Um, but there were, there was one person in particular really early on. There's a lot, there's, who just could not comprehend that I would do something like this. Just was so, so out of the box and inappropriate to open my life and my daughter's life in this way. And, um, 
it's funny because it happened very early on in the process. And I kind of had to study myself and make a decision that I would I be comfortable if that was the majority of the feedback? What if everyone mm-hmm. felt that way? Um, so that was that feedback came though after the film was complete or during the production of the film? On a, uh, during the rough cut, the rough okay. cut screening process after a rough cut. Yeah. And um, yeah, so the decision, the decision to do it was out of this real need to feel to in order to mentally survive this very unique period of time. I know myself well enough to know that I would be very depressed if I did not have a creative outlet. And if I'm very depressed, I'm not being my best self for my daughter or for myself. Mm -hmm. Like I felt like I just had to create something with the tools at my disposal. And then it became a really fun game with, um, Jonathan Sanford, my co-writer and Katie White, um, our producer to sort of create, you know, shoot and shoot and shoot, and then start to play with like, what is story? Like, how good are we at storytellers that we can have this very everyday material and actually craft something out of it? Um, and I've got a, I've got a bunch of questions on, on sort of the craft level of that too. Um, and this is a, it's an interesting thing because this is also your life experience, but also you as a, as a, as a director, uh, creating this. So it's an interesting, um, you know, it, it, I guess you could have multiple different kinds of conversations about this. Um, yeah, definitely. but so did you have, uh, w- when you were shooting, did, were you, were you thinking of story and stuff that you wanted to capture while you were shooting or did you just always have a camera on? How did you approach that? So I shot, I shot it all on this phone. I uh-huh. still have it. All, all my footage is still on there actually, which is insane. Um, and what I really tried to do was, and what I really had to do was just really have it on in my hands at times where it felt like something might happen. You know, if we were leaving the house to go somewhere, if we were going to visit my parents if we were, you know, sort of struggling to get through something, I mean, but there's also a lot of like super, super boring footage of nothing happening <laughs> that did not make the cut. But I guess to answer your question, I want to say that like 95% of my brain was focused on what was actually happening in the moment as a human being. And then 5% of my brain was sort of like this little roving creative person, you know, wondering, like looking for interesting shots or um, trying to understand like what's going on with my daughter in a particular moment or wondering who we might run into. And like that, you know, the camera became an extension of my eyes and my mind and my heart, mm-hmm. I would say that was, that was really how I did it and tried to have it be as intuitive as possible and really did not force it. it anytime where I was like forcing it, those scenes did not make the cut. Interesting. Did you, were you thinking about like the composition of your shots or was it just wherever the phone happened to happen to be while, while life was happening? I thought about composition, like, like very intuitively without spending too much time on it. I love composition and I love like finding compositions, but it's a real intuitive thing for me. And it, it remained that way. Actually, I, when I first started shooting, I thought I might have it be kind of scripted. I was like, Oh, we're going to make a film. We'll like script something. And Mm -hmm. then as I started doing that, I was like, this is just never going to, this is never going to be good. And what's happening in real life is way more interesting than anything I could script. So let's just get, you know, get real with this. I'm going to shoot between now and the day Sylvie leaves to go to her dad's house for the summer. We have four months. Let's see what happens. Okay. And so you had, 
you had some built-in structure in terms of a beginning point and an end point. Did um, how did you how did you approach the structure of this film and 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 telling the story? Did and um, do you, yeah? I guess how did you approach the structure of it? And do you feel like the the way that it's represented in the film feels like how it really happened, or does it does that? F- are, are certain things emphasized more than others because that fits the structure of storytelling better? A little bit of both. A little bit of both. Um, and it's so interesting because, you know, like when you look back at photographs, sort of like what's in the photograph becomes the truth. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit like that with this film, I'm sure like, as we move further and further away from the time that we filmed it, it will just sort of become, that's the order. But there's some, there are some things and it like bugs me every time I watch it, that we, we changed the order because of, we needed to like, make sure the dramatic arcs were hit. That was really important too myself and Jonathan. And then we brought on an editor named Chris Brown, who's a very fine Emmy Sundance winning editor who really helps sculpt and craft. And he's a real like stick by his guns if he believes in something. So we made some changes to the order of things that put them out of sequence that makes me sometimes feel a little uncomfortable when I watch it just because I know that they, that they didn't actually happen in that space, but they work really well for the story. And that is, that happens in documentary, you know, we, at one point we were going to call it a hybrid. Um, you know, what's one interesting place where we did it. So when Sylvie had her seizure, um, I was like, totally did not wait for an ambulance to come to the house, nor was I filming during, during Mm, that, you know, we were in like emergency crisis mode. So I wasn't even thinking about it. I put her in my car, which was harrowing, got her to the um, emergency room. And then, you know, maybe five or six hours later when she was stable, they wanted to move her to another hospital. And so by that point, she had had seizures when she was a baby. We have epilepsy in the family. I knew that she was, she was out of the woods. I was like, well, I, I, I I feel comfortable filming this, but like the hospital ride that's used in the film is, is simply like a transfer hospital ride. Oh, okay. Yeah. But we decided, you know, we made the choice to use it earlier than it actually happened during the movie for dramatic purposes and that's a really i you know i hadn't i hadn't thought of that but i could see that being you know i mean it made perfect sense it flowed you know it worked perfectly in terms of the story i could see that being a little bit of a double-edged sword though in theory people could could respond you know why were you filming right then what why you know what weren't there more important things to do so but it's uh I, I, I guess that's part of the tricky, the tricky part of putting yourself out there. Yeah. We had that conversation probably on like 17 different occasions <laughs> because we did get that feedback. We totally got that feedback. Um, and in fact, you know, like the, there's never any shots of her coming out of a, out of an ambulance. Like those shots are actually backwards in the film there. She's mm. actually being put into the ambulance to just transfer to a hospital that had like a good pediatric unit. Um, but I think that knowing, you know, what my intention and what Sylvie's intention was, was to, to just to kind of tell our story. It, I decided to take that risk and I'm, gl- I'm glad that I did because I think it works for the film. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that whole sequence really works on a, on a story level, really. I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of tension. I mean, as as a viewer, it it feels uh, like this big, uh, scary moment. And I think there's a real value in being able to take the viewer along with that in in that if you didn't, you didn't craft it that way, they might, they might not be. Um, It is uh, there. There's one line in the film um, I forget, I forget who you're speaking with, but 
Uh, someone says it's it's weird. It's weird that you're shooting this and you say, you know, this is my job and your, you know, your job. It's no more weird than your job. Um, and I guess I, I guess I wonder, it is different. It is an interesting, did you find that it influenced your interactions or the way that you went about things with your family members or your life? The fact that you were recording? No, um, no. But I really do sort of go back and forth with whether, you know, like for my family, for my mom and stepdad and my grandmother, who's just in a couple of scenes, um, you know, it was my choice to make this film. It was my choice and it was Sylvie's choice and her dad's choice. We all agreed that we were going to do this together, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but, but for my parents, they were just sort of along for the ride. And it's, it's made me realize how, while we don't see eye to eye on many things, they are just so incredibly supportive because they did think it was totally weird. And really, if I take a step back out of it, it is weird. Like I was bringing, you know, I was like filming all of these like very intimate interactions, but for the most part, nobody really seemed to mind. And I was always asking permission, except with my stepdad, you know, I was asking my mom's permission and he just comes kind of comes <laughs> along for the, uh, but, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's definitely, there's a lot of sort of lines and boundaries within that, that I've had to think long and hard about and mm-hmm. still would probably make all the same choices. Um, if I had the opportunity to go, go back to it again, um, and do it again, but it's not uncomplicated Uh, that way. Yeah. Um, do you think about a target audience for this or are you thinking about the audience at all? Is this just something, a, a document for your family or something that's just, you need to put out into the world or is it important to you who's watching this, what they're getting out of it? Do, do you have a conception of that? Well, when I first started making it, I made it out of like a, a need to stay mentally and emotionally sane during a time that I felt was incredibly difficult. Um, and very early on, we heard that nobody at no festival programmer and no distributors were ever going to be interested in watching films about quarantine and COVID. Mm. So I had sort of like written it off as just simply an exercise of, you know, the last film I made was 52 minutes long. This is 92 minutes. Like, you know, I've made my first feature film, even if nobody sees it, it was just an exercise. And and I was satisfied with that. Um, but then we started applying to festivals and Miami Jewish was the first festival that wanted to premiere it. And what we quickly learned was that there was going to be a really big market for this with Jewish audiences. Mm. And And so we thought, okay, well, you know, this isn't going to be a mainstream film, but we could like do all the Jewish film festivals all over the world and screen at synagogues. And, you know, because it's a film about a Jewish family in Florida and there's so many of us and (laughs) um, not a ton of films like this about this group of people. Uh, And I was okay with that. And then I remember this one day I was, I was walking on the beach And, um, I got the phone call from slam dance and I was just like, oh my gosh, wow. Cause that definitely was, you know, for someone who came up in the nineties, love a lover of independent film slam dance is kind of like the, the bright, shiny object. (laughs) And so then I started to realize that there was a bigger audience for this film that maybe in its sort of weirdness or discomfort or or that, that, that people were going to be interested and people seem to be interested. So we're doing like, I think my audience is families, people who have kids, 
um, people who went through this period of time, probably my age group though, like a lot of like younger people in the slam dance community have seen it and really enjoyed it as well. So I think we're still sort of figuring it out. We're about to go to our uh, third festival next week, which is our first in-person screening at UN. Oh, great. Yeah. Where is that at? The, um, it's in Alabama, the George Lindsay UNA Film Festival. Great. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's sort of evolving, but families, that's like a super long winded answer to <laughs> families. Right? Okay. No, but I think moms, single moms, Jewish families, single dads. Yeah. I mean, it, and it is a story that I think, I think if, if your experience overlaps in a, in a significant way, then it's going to speak really, you know, really clearly to you. But I think there's a lot there that it's just universal. Um, there, there's one scene that I just loved and I wonder if you could explain a little what happened, but the scene with the baby bird that I, and I don't know if, I mean, that's the kind of thing, I don't know in, in real life what that experience was like, but the, in the, in the context of the film that spoke to me, just uh, the symbolism there of the the encounter with the baby bird and with your daughter. But what what could you explain a little what happened with the baby bird? Yeah, and that's a great example of a scene that we moved out of order. I think it happens now, like after Mother's Day, because I thought it was so relevant to speak about you know parenting, right? Mm -hmm. um, so. Essentially, we have this really these like rafters on our front porch. And for a couple of years, these birds were sort of nesting there. And we loved it. We loved like that there was always a bird like perched on her eggs there in that nest. But I'd never seen the babies. So yes, this one day we were coming home and the bird just kind of whipped by my eyes. And one of the things that I, I really thought it was a baby bird trying to fly. Now I'm not even sure if that was the mother or the mm. baby because it didn't look like a, a new baby. It looked more mature. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that really struck me later that day, which, which was not in the film, is that a much larger bird sat on the roof, just staring down at the bird that had passed away for like two hours later that afternoon. And it was really, really moving to see that kind of connection in the animal kingdom to, mm. to death. And like, clearly that bird was in mourning. Mm. Um, so that was really interesting, but that scene for me also does have a lot of humor to it because Sylvie's like, you know, just totally convinced that the bird is dead, but I'm still holding on. <laughs> like I won't let go of this, you know, idea that the bird is going to live or is still alive. Yeah. And I, to me, I just thought that the, the scene of, you know, the, and you're saying that, you know, the, the, the mom bird pushes the baby out and that's how it learns to fly. This is all part of, uh, how they learn, and then and then it it doesn't really, um, and it, it just seemed like in this crazy pandemic time where we're trying to take care of kids and we're trying we're trying to say everything's going to be all right, and then things aren't always all right, and it's it, it's uh, and that's not just now; that's also a universal thing. But this idea of how we want everything to just be great for our kids and then these challenges come up or these things happen that we weren't foreseeing or we can't control i don't maybe i'm reading too much into it but i i love that scene no and and as it was happening um you know i was i was aware i was aware of that as it was happening i love that scene i like i wanted to open the movie with that scene because I felt like it, everything that you just said, for all the reasons that you just said, it was really, you know, felt like it was telling our story that that moment, you know, and yeah, it went on for much longer than we, we show in the film because we did call her dad and her dad is like talking, talking us through it. And 
it was, it was a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> um, so a, a little bit transitioning from this film, but what, what do you have next? How, how, and where, how, um, where are you take, where are you going from this project into future projects? Um, what, what do you feel like you've it? So I guess, let me rephrase. Um, so I'm curious about what your next project is and, and also just generally, are there things that you've learned from this process of making this that you'll bring into whatever projects you have in the future? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, because my producer on this film, Katie White and I had met, you know, a, quite a while before we, maybe like six or eight months before we started this film, um, we had already another project in the pipeline that is now starting up, which I don't think I'm allowed to talk about yet, but it is also a documentary and the main subject is a very old friend of mine. And I will be a little bit in that film as well, kind of okay. as the, the holder of the story is with what one of the producers call, call it, which I thought was so cool, um, or the keeper of the story. Um, so I've learned a little bit about, about that, you know, about how to sort of be on camera a little bit in documentary. This was my first attempt at documentary. The next film is a little bit more of a hybrid. There's going to be recreations in the film and a lot of storytelling, but also documentary. So in that hybrid space, I've found is like potentially a real sweet spot for me. And I think really helpful for getting indie films made because the budgets don't have to be as high. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm also really learning the whole process of sales and distribution now, which is like a huge game changer going through this whole slam dance process and meeting with sales agents and um, distributors and all of that kind of stuff, which is cool. And then I have another a uh, really fantastic project with a, a friend, my oldest friend who I've been friends with for 30 years. His name is Josh Randall. He's an actor and we are writing a very fantastical comedy script together that I'm really excited about. And I think the biggest takeaway from this film and the really unexpected like little bits of success that it's, I mean, for, for what we thought this film was going to, be like received in the world. This is having like a huge success so much more mm -hmm. than we thought it would. But the big takeaway is that what people are responding to is like the most personal work possible. Mm. You know, there's no pretense, literally zero pretense. It just is fully putting ourselves out there and I think that's a big lesson for me that the work that I create needs to really just be a lot closer to my personal life experience. That's such a great lesson. Um, and do you feel like if, if you were going to give advice to somebody else who was, who was just starting out or just wondering, um, wanting some kind of career in film, but not sure what to do, what, what kind of advice would you give to somebody? Well, Katie really taught me the value of the festival circuit. And so I think that like, well, you had a short film in slam dance. So you're mm -hmm. saying, yeah. And it was like a, per a film, very personal to you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So like, that would be my advice to, to anyone is like, make something really short and really personal and use the festival circuit to start to find your footing in the world. It's an incredible and vast resource of places and people to share your work with and to get better and to get feedback. Do you, what do you think? Would you agree with that? Having, I think, I think so. I think especially when you can go to a festival in person, I, I think, um, or, I mean, I guess people have had different approaches to virtual festivals, but I've, when I've in the past gone to in-person festivals, just the, the people that you bump into, the people whose films you saw that you can chat with and they, they get, you can share ideas, you can network that. And 
just being surrounded by creative, ambitious people seems really nice to me. It's a little bit, I think I, I have felt a little, uh, like the, like the virtual festivals just lose a lot of that, but they uh, really, they really do. Um, but many festivals are starting to come back yeah. in person. And I think, I think that's going to be great as, as more and more do. Um, and as the circumstances improve such that it makes sense for them to, um, so I want to just, uh, I know I don't want to hold you up too long, but, um, what are, what would you say your three favorite films are? Oh gosh. I, so, okay. I, I really love Silver Linings Playbook. Mm. Um, I really like the movie Flirting with Disaster, two films by David O. Russell, which is really kind of an, an unusual person for me to select it. But I just find that those two films have so much humor and so much heart. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And well, I don't know. I wish I would have known you were going to ask me. Oh, that's part, that's part of the question is uh, having it's, to come up with it on the spot. It's really hard. I mean, I, there's, there's so many pieces of films that I love. Like, for example, I just saw um, Mike Mills new movie. Come on, come on. Oh yeah. Yep. It was really beautiful. Really, really beautiful film. Um, definitely a fan of Sofia Coppola. Mm -hmm. Um, and then like back, back when I first started watching independent movies, I was really into a lot of the film noirs that were big in the, in the nineties, like memento. Oh, sure. Okay. Um, but I also just now really feel like I want to support films that capture the upliftment of the human experience that don't have violence that don't have government. <laughs> like I just, you know, there's so much beauty and, and light in what we have at our disposal as humans. And so I find myself really gravitating towards films that celebrate that versus. That's yeah. That's great. Uh, and I, I think that approach and that attitude, I mean, I, I like, I, I like both camps of films, the, the violent and the nonviolent, but I think that's great to, to seek out ones that are more positive. Um, what do you end up actually watching? I wonder. I feel like there's your, what you would say your favorite films are. And then if you were, if someone were to look at your TV habits, what, what, what do you actually end up watching the most? Comedy, uh -huh. comedy. Yeah. Stand up comedy, rom-coms, um, even like Adam Sandler comedies. I really liked that movie, uh, the week of that he made with Chris Rock. Oh yeah. Okay. I just, mm -hmm. you know, I, I know it's like super mainstream to say that and like not cool at all, but I'd like to, to be happy and to, to laugh. And, um, so I find, I find myself watching a ton of comedy now. And then like, as silly as it is, Sylvie is now, she's so sensitive that in the past, up until about a year ago, the the three act, the arc of a three act structure was like so overwhelmingly emotional for her that she couldn't even watch movies really. So we never had that connection around watching films or TV shows together. She would just watch real little kids stuff like Daniel Tiger's neighborhood. Uh -huh. Um, but now that she's 11, 11 and a half, um, we're watching the Gilmore girls. Okay. Which is fun because it's like a single mom and her teenage daughter. And again, super mainstream and probably not cool at all. But it's just, it's great to like be able to experience the world of film and TV with her finally after like 11 years of life. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Um, my, my last question, there's a Christoph Waltz, the actor did a, uh, did an interview where he was asked, uh, you were, you were a, an actor on German Austrian TV shows. It just seemed like that's where your career was going to stay. And then, 
you got this opportunity to come be in uh, Quentin Tarantino's movies and and won Oscars and did so many things. So, so the question he was asked was, did you? Were you satisfied? Were you happy doing Austrian TV? Or did you always dream of coming to Hollywood and winning an Oscar? And he said, both. I was happy doing that. And I and I had dreams of, of bigger things. And so my question to you is, what do you love? What makes you happy about what you're doing right now? And what would a future dream be or, or something that you aspire to in the future? So currently, and this is being like so candid, (laughs) the um, way that my life is kind of divided up is that I'm earning my income from making TV commercials and my films projects are like, you know, slowly happening, slowly ramping up. But like, I couldn't survive on that. The income that I have from films, there is a little income there. So my dream is to really uh, be a writer director who is earning my full income from writing and directing films, original content and leaving, you know, while I love making TV commercials, there's a part of me that would like to be more choosy with what I do and really work for brands that I can believe in and get behind mm-hmm. versus having to say yes to things, knowing that like, you know, I have to support my child and pay my mortgage and right. all that kind of stuff. And yeah, I would love to win an Oscar one day. (laughs) (laughs) I would. Sure. You know, and I really didn't, didn't know, um, for a while I was like, well, maybe that's just like a dream that's not going to happen because I haven't even made my first feature yet. And I'm, you know, when is that going to happen? But now slowly I'm starting to realize that a, it really doesn't matter, um, if it does happen or if it doesn't, but it's certainly a possibility. That's well, I, I wish you the best of luck. And I, I, I think it absolutely is a possibility. And I, um, I hope to see lots of your future projects. Uh, where can people follow you? Where, uh, find out more about the film? Where, where would you direct people? So we're, we're keeping an Instagram that's um, at Sylvia of the Sunshine State. And the website for the film is Sylvia of the Sunshine State.com. Um, and my Instagram is at Sasha Greer Levinson, G-R-E-E-R. Um, and between those three places, we're keeping, trying to keep like screenings updated and, and all of that and sort of like bringing people along with the festival journey. And then hopefully in the next like six months, we'll have some type of distribution in place where people can watch the film on like iTunes or Amazon prime, or we may even do you know, some type of theaters in Florida, perhaps that's also potentially on the table. So, yeah. Great. Well, I, I encourage everybody who gets the chance, whether it's now or, or in the future to, to see Sylvia of the Sunshine State and, and to look out for anything from Sasha Levinson. Thank, Thank you so you. much for being with us. That's so nice of you. Thank you. And that brings our episode to an end. Thank you for joining us. You can find out more links and information on the show notes or go to topnewfilmmakers.com where we'll have links, information, transcripts, whatever you want, you find it there. So thank you and come back next time where we'll be talking to more filmmakers that you might not have heard of, but should definitely pay attention to. I'm Peter Kimball. Thank you.